case for the day, Fuge Contracting v. Red Kirkendall & Associates. Mr. Bergeron? Bergeron. Good morning, Your Honors. May it please the Court. In this case, there was a denial of a motion for summary judgment, an involuntary settlement that compromised most claims, and a bench trial largely about that settlement. The result was a $1.6 million judgment against FCI for a design defect over which it had no control. But had summary judgment been properly granted in this case, liability would have been largely determined, and that FCI would have prevailed in its claims against the parish and against SKA, and those parties would not. The remaining issues would have only been FCI's damages, FCI's damages, and St. Bernard Parish government's damages against SKA. Instead, what the district court essentially held in this case was that FCI was the warrantor of SKA's work, a principle soundly and explicitly rejected by Louisiana law. So reversing the district court's denial of summary judgment here puts the parties in the correct posture to resolve the matter, or at the very least, to proceed to a trial. If we were to decide the indemnity agreement's expansive language allowed travelers to settle the case, do you agree that would moot out any live controversy about the summary judgment? Not necessarily, Your Honor, and the reason is because there would still need to be a determination of liability, or if in this case there was no determination of liability, as this court has held in Tanksley, that would mean that travelers essentially would waive its ability to collect against FCI by operation of the Spearman Doctrine or of the Louisiana Contractor Immunity Act, which, as we state in our brief, was not effective at the time that the GAI was entered into between travelers and between FCI. However, that was existing in Louisiana public policy, which would make that indemnity improper. So determining the summary judgment is still important, and determining the summary judgment in FCI's favor would mean, one, that FCI was not liable, FCI could not be held responsible for the fault of another, but also that indemnity would be improper because indemnity in this case would be against Louisiana law and public policy. Okay, simplify that a little bit for me. No indemnity here because no liability because this was a design defect. That's correct, Your Honor. So the case that we rely on is Tanksley v. Gulf Oil Corporation cited by this case, cited by this court. And the district court concluded not a design defect because your client should have read Appendix 1, and had that been read closely, the rotational conflict would have been seen. Essentially, that's correct, Your Honor. That is the gist of the district court's denial of the motion for summary judgment. In Tanksley, what this court decided was that in the application of LOIA, the Louisiana Oil Field Anti-Indemnity Act, which is a sister statute of the LCIA, the Louisiana Contractor Anti-Indemnity Act, is that a determination of liability is necessary in order to determine whether that statute can apply. And the reason is because those statutes do not allow a contractor or a contractor to be held responsible for the fault of another. It cannot require a contractor to indemnify another for the fault of a third party. And so what happened in Tanksley was that the underlying insurer, or the surety I think it was, settled the claims prior to there being a determination of liability. And then the surety or the insurer came back and said, all right, now you have to indemnify us because we paid this and we have an indemnity agreement. And this court said, 
Well, because you settled, because you precluded a determination of liability or of responsibility, then LOIA would have to apply. Because the only way that LOIA does not apply is if there is a determination that the indemnity or the third party was not at fault. That's the reason that that's so important here. And that's the reason that traveler settlement uh, is so important in that it cannot then come back and say, okay, FCI, you must now indemnify us. But then getting back to the motion for summary judgment issue, what the district court did was an error of law. That's why the motion for summary judgment is reviewable. Um, the appellees don't address the specific issues as to why the denial of the motion for summary judgment is reviewable, but it's because it was predicated on an issue of law. Um, and as there were this, no disputed facts, it's just how you interpret this contract. Th that's correct, Your Honor. There were no relevant disputed facts. The district court did raise one, uh, merely in dicta. Uh, that said uh, there could be the issue as to whether Mr. Fusich had read the, uh, the contract, uh, read Appendix 1 or not. Immaterial. And the reason is because the question before the district court, the question on fault, is do the contract documents provide for a working system? The answer is no. The reason the answer is no is because the contract documents refer to a specific engine seven times, the CAT 3512C engine. Right, but as I read the district court reconciling all the parts, the district court said you could have used the Caterpillar engine, but you had to deliver pumps that were, quote, ready for operation. So it was the obligation of the contractor, if he were going to choose the Caterpillar, to make sure then the gear reducers worked the other way. We disagree, Your Honor, and that is because as it relates specifically to the gear reducers, the specification relating to the gear reducers say they are to be maintained in their rotational um, direction. Uh, the way that the gear reducer specification is specifically listed, and I can get you that, that citation to the record. But you don't dispute that the contract obligated your, con your, contra your client to deliver pumps that worked. We do dispute that, Your Honor. We dispute that. We dispute that because it is our position that the contract required the contractor to build according to the plans and specifications. Build and for, something that wouldn't work. The reason that it didn't work is because that's the way that it was designed. And the SKA, the designer here, the engineer, cannot pass off responsibility. In fact, Spearin specifically says this, that a, an engineer, a designer, cannot pass off responsibility onto a contractor by simply saying, you make sure this works. We've put all this together. We've said how we think it's going to go, but it's your responsibility to make sure this works. That's not appropriate because then that makes the contractor the warrantor of uh, the plan. But you agree there's no design defect and it works, even using the Caterpillar engine specified, if you reverse the direction of the gears? If the direction of the gears... That's ultimately what was done. If the direction of the gears were called for to be reversed, yes, then, then, then we agree 100%. However, the specific specifications of the right angle gear reducers say, and this is undisputed, the specific specifications of the, sorry, specific specifications of the right angle gear reducers say, do not change the rotation. And so when SKA advises FCI in the pre-bid meeting to buy this engine, when the contract documents say seven times, buy this engine, when funding by FEMA is specifically... Uh, okay, slow down. The contract doesn't say buy the engine. It does say it specifies it seven times as to emission equivalence. But nowhere in the contract does it say, and no substitutions are allowed. Correct. That is correct, Your Honor. We do concede that. Um, 
But then that presents us with the issue that SKA is setting up a contractor to fail. We cannot ignore the fact that it is undisputed. SKA on multiple occasions made representations to FCI and others that the CAT 3512C was the engine to be purchased. We cannot ignore that the FEMA funding... That's an oral statement, but all the district did here was deny the motion, the partial motion for summary judgment. So whether Breeden, CFO, correct, for SKA, was it Breeden? Yes, that's correct. Whether he did or didn't say buy the Caterpillar engine, we don't know that. It's undisputed. It is a fact, but it is an undisputed fact. The SKA, in everything that I've read in the record, did not deny that, did not dispute that. But even taking that out, even that aside, the fact that this engine is referenced in these contract documents, and because the contract specifically says Appendix 1 and Appendix 2 are part of the contract documents, how could any reasonable contractor justify purchasing any other engine? What about the chronology in your client does submit the purchase orders prior to SKA writing back, hey, wait a minute, make sure it all works, right? The handwritten notes do it correctly, but the orders had already gone in. We agree with that timeline, Your Honor, and I have two responses to that. First of all, that was SKA's response to everything relating to the engine. But second, as Spearman holds, that's not enough to shift liability off of the designer, off of the engineer, by simply saying, you make sure that this works. The question is really, was it appropriate for, that's all that the motion for summary judgment asked was, was it appropriate, could FCI have purchased this engine? The answer must be yes. I know, but the district court didn't say no. The district court said yes, but if you're going to do it to fulfill your obligation to make it work, you would then have to make a compensation. And that's where the district court was wrong as a matter of law, because that is the issue of contract interpretation. That is where we get into the fact that doing everything that FCI was supposed to do resulted in a project that would not function primarily because there was no directive to change the direction of the right angle gear reducers. I mean, just putting it slightly a different way, did the contract mandate FCI to purchase counterclockwise engines? I do not think that it did, Your Honor. However, the undisputed facts were that the only engines that would work in this case for this project had counterclockwise rotations. Mr. Fusich, in his declaration that was uncontroverted, stated that the only rotation... But readings testified that, quote, at least three other engines met the engine specifications and emission requirements. So it wasn't just this one. There was testimony that there were other engines that would have met both emissions and the specs. I'm not aware of that, Your Honor. I don't... You don't think he said that? I don't, no, Your Honor, I don't. I think they were... There was a significant issue, particularly what Mr. Fusich brought up was the use of the CAT 3512C as well as specific mentions of the engine family. Mr. Fusich went back into and discussed the engine family, meaning that there were certain designations by FEMA as to what engines would work and which ones wouldn't. And so there were no appropriate engines in this particular family that would match this particular project. But that just goes back to the issue of FCI being allowed. I mean, the policy here is that SKA, an engineer, can tell contractors 
can tell anyone, hey, yeah, this is the engine. This is the engine. You're going to use the engine. We're going to use the engine. We've told everyone we're going to use the engine. We've told um, DEQ, LDEQ. We've told FEMA we're going to use this engine. But if you purchase this engine, it's your fault. You're the one who messed all of this up. And it's even, it's even reinforced by the fact that the uh, notice to bidders in this case instructed all of the bidders uh, to review the contract documents to see if they found any discrepancies. And if they found any discrepancies, they were to instruct, uh, to advise SKA. Of all the bidders who were in attendance at the pre-bid meeting, nobody pointed it out. The record uh, the, the parish attached the notes from that pre-bid meeting to their motion for summary judgment. It listed all the questions that anybody asked. Not a single person brought that up. So if FCI was supposed to be able to find this, and as we said in our, in our brief, the SKA is essentially requiring FCI to go and play a multi-million dollar game of Where's Waldo. They expected them to find it, something that SKA, as the designer, did not find. And so as a matter of policy here, and this gets to the Louisiana contractor immunity uh, law, contractors cannot be held responsible for the fault of others. So to the extent this is in any way the fault of SKA, Louisiana law and public policy says that FCI cannot be held responsible. And that bears out through the indemnity as well, because if Travelers is going to be seeking indemnity for this settlement that it made, precluding a finding of liability, then law and public policy also prevents travelers from being able to recoup that money from FCI because there was no finding of liability. And because if this court finds that SKA was at fault even a bit, the contract immunity law is strong, the uh, Contractor Anti-Indemnity Act is strong, and FCI must be protected. That is the law and public policy of the state of Louisiana. Now, we do not waive what, any what do, you, what do you say about... Um uh, your, your client's uh, refusal to participate in the so-called technical meeting and also its refusal to participate in the settlement conference? Your Honor, that's, those are disputed. That was borne out at trial a bit. But essentially what Mr. Fusich's opinion was that everyone was trying to force him into this. He knew that he had done nothing wrong. He knew that he had the protections of Louisiana law in that contract. So the answer was not to participate? The, the answer, and, and we disagree that he didn't necessarily participate. There was some testimony at trial that w the specific um, meeting that everyone was talking about, Mr. Fusich had advised his, his attorney that he was not available at that time. There was other testimony that um, he had simply refused to participate, but it was Mr. Fusich's testimony at trial that he was unavailable. He was always willing to talk settlement, but the settlement that was being proposed to him by travelers and others were simply unreasonable, simply unreasonable. So the magistrate judge calls a settlement conference and you just refuse to show up. Is that, is that right? I don't know that that's necessarily what he did. I did know that there was an issue that he was... Either he showed up or he didn't. I mean, that, that, there can't be much dispute about that. What does the record show? I, th I think the record shows that his... And I see I'm out of time. I, I, I think the record shows that his attorney uh, contacted the court and said that they were not available or that they wouldn't show up. But I think there is a dispute as to his availability. I reserve the remainder of my time for rebuttal. Thank you. Uh, yes, you've saved time for rebuttal. Thank yes. you, Mr. Bergeron. Mr. Clary? Thank you, Your Honor. May it please the Court. Dale Clary on behalf of Shred Kirkendall and Associates, SKA. Uh, 
To answer Judge Higginson's question, Mr. Breeding did, in fact, testify there were other engines that were available. He identified Caterpillar, Mitsubishi, and Cummings engines that could have rotated in either direction. So that is in the record. I'm only going to address the motion for partial summary judgment that was denied by the trial court. It was appropriately denied. We're going to defer on the remaining issues to Travelers and Mr. Krebs, particularly on whether or not the GAI gave Travelers the legal authority to dismiss the claims against SKA. The court did not exonerate SKA in denying the motion for summary judgment. What the court merely said was that the contractor, FCI, did not meet its obligations under the contract documents, and there were several. Number one was read the dadgum things, read the contract documents, which he admits in his deposition he did not do, and this was before the court in the motion for partial summary judgment. Appendix 1 had the rotations of the old gear. Appendix 1 had the rotation of the old engine, an old marine engine, by the way, an old Deutsch German engine. It was a marine engine, as we know from maritime cases, can rotate either way, and that's, in fact, what they had there. He didn't read the specifications that required him to coordinate the equipment between the equipment suppliers. Keep in mind this was a $5 million contract with $3.6 million worth of equipment. You drafted it. We drafted the specifications. That's correct. And then the only engine described anywhere in there seven times is a particular one. But when you read it. He says your CFO reading said that's the one to use. The specifications did not specify a particular engine, and they cannot. But it describes only one. You read the whole thing. It's the only engine ever mentioned. In the engine specifications itself, there is no saying that you're going to go get the right engine. But it's not a model of clarity. I mean, if a contractor is looking at it thinking what engine, you might logically think, oh, here's the one that passed the emission standard. So my question to you is, pursuant to the contract, whose job was it to spot that, oh, that engine actually won't work? The one that's mentioned seven times won't work. Whose job did the contract say? Keep in mind, first, the engine specification and the gear specification did not specify rotation. So he's wrong in his original statement to say the gear was a locked-in, one-way only rotation? Correct. That's the incorrect reading of the specification. So am I right that your position is the district court's, that the Caterpillar engine was actually usable? It absolutely was usable. And, in fact, those four engines are in use today because all they did was change the gear, change the rotation. So what should that contractor have done? He should have coordinated between his equipment, his engine supplier, and his gear supplier. That's part of the process of coordination. It's a technical term. It's a technical meaning in construction. It's defined in the contract documents, but it's also something that every general contractor should know and does know, is that you have these two huge pieces of equipment that have to connect, and, as Judge Ash said, they have to be testing and complete and operational and ready to go. And he never had them talk to each other. Each of those two engines, the engine supplier and the gear supplier, both provided what they call submittals during the course of the project and even in anticipation of the project, which on the first page of the Caterpillar submittal it said, we rotate this way. The third page of the Philadelphia gear submission said, we rotate the other way. He never looked at them. He also never had them look at each other, give them to each other. When he sent the purchase orders out, then you get involved, and did you spot it and say, oh, my goodness, that's not going to work? I'm a lawyer. Oh, you mean SKA? I'm sorry. No, he did not, because the specifications didn't require either way, and you can get engines that would go either way. That goes back to what Mr. Breeding said in his affidavit about Mitsubishi, Cummings, and Caterpillar all have engines that can rotate in either direction. So the actual direction 
selected by the contractor was not critical to the engineer because it wasn't in the specifications. What it was critical to, the contractor's obligation to do a complete operating system and make sure he coordinated between those two. That was the contractor's job, and that's what he failed to do, and that's what the trial court found in denying the motion for partial summary judgment. And he even told us in open court, Judge Ash did, he said, don't anybody do a happy dance just because I've made this ruling. And that what he meant was, this case is not over. I'm just saying that there's, no, there's a genuine issue of material fact or there are obligations of the contractor that he did not meet. And that's why the motion for partial summary judgment was properly denied. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Mr. Clary. Mr. Krebs? David Krebs, Your Honors, for Travelers. With me is Craig Mangum, my partner. This case is not about the Spearing Doctrine. This case is not about who is right and wrong on the specification. This case is about the surety's right to settle a disputed claim that places it in jeopardy. Unilaterally and very early? Unilaterally and early. Yes, Your Honor. I agree the indemnity language is pretty broad, but bond language isn't so broad. But the bond language, well, the bond language is, in fact, a contract, a tripartite contract between the obligee, the principal, and the surety. And so it contains obligations in there that to the obligee from the surety as a, but the core document, Judge, between fusage and travelers, between a principal and the surety, is the general agreement of indemnity. That is the constitution of the relationship. And it is signed before any bond is ever issued. It is the document, the contract pursuant to which these bonds then are issued. And travelers issued, and the record reflects it, 44 bonds relying on that general agreement of indemnity. That general agreement of indemnity is ferocious and it is enforceable. And the reason it is ferocious is because as surety, you are in a precarious position when a claim is made. Yes, but am I right that just chronologically, your client's position was all the way till June 2019, this is a design defect case? You were agreeing. Your Honor, I was going to try that position. I was going to try that position. I was going to walk into Judge Ash and I was going to put on the, because Mr. Bergeron, he was an excellent lawyer and a very honorable lawyer, a pleasure to work with. He is not a construction lawyer. I've been a construction lawyer for 42 years. My bias is towards the Spearing Doctrine, which is codified in New Orleans, I mean in Louisiana at 2771, I think, Title IX. The point is there was risk here. There was risk all over this. And I had a principle, travelers had a principle, who would not acknowledge that risk and who would not accept a commercially reasonable settlement, a very favorable settlement. Dale kicked in policy limits at the end, $350,000 left on a depleting policy. Mr. Gerald, who was representing St. Bernard, he put in $462,000. Travelers put up $610,000. 
Mr. Fusich refused to deal whatsoever and was leading us to a judgment you could, not a judgment I necessarily would have agreed with, but one that Judge Ash would have brought down a judgment, I believe, from the signals I was getting, of four and a half, five million dollars. We had an opportunity to settle this at a commercially reasonable place, and I will spare you the public safety arguments and all of that. Leave all of that aside. It made complete business sense, not only for us, but for Mr. Bergeron's client, for Fusich. And he is- Help me, again, you've worked in this area a lot. Yes, sir. And so I'm going to ask too simple a question, but when I look at cases like L&A contracting, the surety can't unilaterally settle until some actual liability is determined, or that's wrong? That's wrong, Judge. Okay. So when's the point where you can settle? Because of the indemnity language, any time you want? So it's going to depend on the terms of the general agreement of indemnity. Okay. And not the bond language that's in- And not the bond language. Can you help me with a case that clarifies that? Because on the bond language, it looked to me like the parish, there had to be the owner default. And obviously, the guy was never paid because SKA doesn't certify it, right? Yes. Yes. So the cases, Judge, there are numerous cases. What's a helpful one? You go on with the argument. Your argument will be helpful. What I think is helpful, and the cases support this, what is helpful is the general agreement of indemnity itself, the actual contract. Right. And under that, you can settle whenever you want. Under that, we can settle whenever we want. And there is no prohibition on settling early. The contract says what the contract says. Section 4 has to do with settling claims against us. And the point that I want to get to is Section 6, which is a little bit more, not a little bit more, is more aggressive. And it's something we hesitate before we do, because you end up in this very court when you do it. And that is settling their affirmative claims. How on earth do we have the right to do that? We have the right to do that because the right is assigned to us in Section 6. And then, in addition, under, I think it's Section 11, the Section 11, we are granted the right as attorney in fact to exercise those. I think I understand all that. And just speak for a moment again, just indulge me. Section 3 of the bond, the parish complied with all the notice provisions. It did. It did. So Section 3, and just to alert you, the L&A case, which was written by Judge Wisdom, and every surety lawyer has it tattooed on his heart, because it's a fountainhead. And it really addresses, and it starts with, the case turns on difference between a breach and a default. That was an A311 bond. There are no, there is no paragraph 3. This is a different bond. It's A312. The legal principles remain the same. But it's a, but it's a, I just alert you to that when you're looking at the case. So the point is this, and Judge Ash got it. It is, it is in, it is his conclusion of Law 35. And what he said was, at bottom, 
traveler's rights arise under the GAI and are not affected by owner default within the meaning of the bond or the prime contract. That's a paraphrase on my part. But the reason is that default is defined in all sorts of different ways. You can look at the definition of default in the L&A case, which I love. You can look at the definition of default in a contract. You can look at the definition of default in the Louisiana revised statutes having to do with ... We all know what a default is, but the technicalities of it depend on its context and the terms. And default within the meaning of the general agreement of indemnity is defined in the general agreement of indemnity. And it is very clear that ... I'm looking to see if I have that written down, Judge. It's in the definitions, which is paragraph two of the general agreement of indemnity. Default. Any of the following shall constitute a default, cap D default. A, a declaration of contract default by any obligee. Doesn't have to be a formal declaration. It doesn't have to be a proper declaration. It has to be a declaration of default. It goes on then to say an actual breach or abandonment of any contract. Because actual liability is something different from the owner saying that you're in default. So once the owner says it's in default, the surety is at risk. And these rights under the general agreement of indemnity are implicated. And that's why I say we would ... How early did the parish say in default? I'm sorry, say again. How early did the parish say they're in default? Do you remember roughly? We went around with them on that. When they first gave us notice in February of 2018, they didn't use the proper words. They didn't ... We tend to rely a little bit, Judge, on magic words because we have to. You're still disagreeing with them then? Yes. You're still saying it's design defect? Well, we didn't know then because we hadn't investigated. We didn't know anything because the surety's not out there. The surety writes the bond and then takes the premium and has no other problem unless until there's a problem. So we're not part of the construction. So our first notice was in February of 2018. And Ms. Ziv Goldstein, who was the claim handler, responded in July after ... She picked up the phone. She called. She did all the things an experienced claim handler would do, trying to head things off. She responded in July of 2018 that there was no default termination. That's the same time at which she said to Mr. Fusich, and it's part of his bad faith claim, that she said, man, you ought to see if you can get out of this thing because it's going to cost you a bunch of money. He took that as pressure. The judge did not find that it was pressure. The judge found it as what it was. It's not in the record, but I was sitting there. It was a warning. It was somebody who knows this ... I mean no disrespect, but this game ... and knows what the risks are. And so the default termination then came on July 20, 2018, in a letter from Mr. Cheryl. And then 
years into this litigation and suddenly the issue was raised, was Mr. Gerald an authorized representative? The court found that he was. There is evidence to support that. There is no showing of clear error on that. But here's my legal point, Judge, and that is this. If I am right and the travelers had the ability to settle this claim when it did, all these other arguments fall. And the reason they fall, I think the argument on considering the partial summary judgment, the interlocutory appeal, I think it's really clever. And I read it with a lot of interest. But it doesn't apply here. And why doesn't it apply here? Because when travelers settled this case, it settled the case under its power of attorney. It was exercising fusages rights. So to say that in the exercise of fusages rights, it legally, it is the same as if fusage had settled the case and then came in and said, well, I did this, but. I mean, I know that's not factually what happened. But I think the legal effect is the same. That case was settled by fusage through a power of attorney granted to travelers, even though he objected to it. So the first thing that falls is the whole motion for summary judgment argument. The other thing that falls, and I can try to walk through the swamp that is the Contractor Anti-Indemnity Act and how that applies to the, or does not apply to the surety. But it does not void indemnity agreements. An indemnity agreement is not a collateral agreement under that act. And Mr., and I will tell you, there's no case that specifically holds that. But a collateral agreement has to be an agreement that's ancillary. If you look at the cases, particularly under the Oil Field Act, they make it clear that a general agreement of indemnity would not be the type of agreement that is a collateral agreement. And I don't even know why I'm telling you that, because he concedes. Evan concedes that the act has no application. So what he's really saying is that we couldn't settle because of the Spearman Doctrine. That would be like saying that fusage can't settle its own, a disputed claim against it. Because we were exercising fusage's rights that had been assigned to us under a power of attorney. And we signed that settlement on behalf of fusage under the power of attorney. There was a separate settlement line for fusage. So the, just to tie it up, this is really about the surety's right to settle, which is quite clear in the case law and supported by the case law. On bad faith, I had a whole argument for bad faith, but I'm out of time. And bad faith, I commend to you the court's 
the trial court's very careful, very detailed factual findings of fact, which are tied into the record and which were better than we could have done. They did a better job with the facts than we did. Thank you very much for your patience. Thank you, Mr. Krebs. Mr. Bergeron for Rabeau. Thank you, Your Honors. I'll begin with the assertion about the right-angle gear reducers. There was some confusion, and so to point the court specifically to it, the right-angle gear reducers are ROA, the specifications are in ROA 1055 to 1057, and I made the assertion that it maintains, it directs the contractor to maintain the rotation. And the reason I say that is because Section 1120 scope of work discusses the right-angle gear reducers. System performance provides that the proposed system will operate the same as the existing system unless modified therein. Subsection 201 of those specifications, scope of work, contains no mention of any reversal of a rotational direction. So what they're essentially saying here is that, okay, FCI, not only do you have to figure out the rotational direction of the engines, you also have to figure out on your own that even though we don't tell you in these specifications, you're going to need to change the rotation of the right-angle gear reducers. But you answered to me earlier that the contract didn't require FCI to buy counterclockwise engines. That was left open. That's correct, Your Honor. That's correct. But it was all of the combination of naming this specific engine, the fact that this engine only had a drive shaft that rotated one way, and the fact that this specific section does not describe or even contemplate changing the rotation of the right-angle gear reducers is what makes it improper here. Second... Mr. Clary says that there were available engines that would have functioned properly. We were not made aware of those, Your Honor. We essentially did what SKA told us to do. It's easy for them to come back and say, oh, well, you could have bought this one, you could have bought this one. In fact, you should have bought these, notwithstanding what we told you to do. You want to definitely save time, because we don't even reach all this if the argument is correct that the surety here could settle this out. And, Your Honor, as to the surety argument, they are arguing under essentially that a mandate was created, a power of attorney, a mandate was created. We know as black-letter law that you cannot exercise a right of a mandate if the mandatory objects, if the principal objects, which is what happened here. They're essentially saying, you're giving us this mandate, we can do whatever we want, regardless as to whether you agree with it or not. That's inappropriate. We're giving you $5 million, but if things go wrong, we get to settle the dispute. Well, and travelers were protected by the general. There was all this discussion about there being risk, right, there being risk. FCI understood that and was prepared to go forward. Travelers was supposed to be protected on the back end, but travelers didn't even let us go to trial to determine whether there was an appropriateness. A settlement is a discussion that is not entered into, is a decision that is not entered into lightly. And since FCI had its affirmative claims that it was pressing, because FCI had the Louisiana contractor immunity statute that it knew was strong in its favor. Just so I'm understanding, because you two have clearly litigated this for a long time, your argument that travelers could not settle this 
is premised on some language you say reserved your right in the indemnity agreement, is premised on language that undercuts the indemnity agreement in the bond, or is premised on Louisiana law? It's premised on Louisiana law, Your Honor. Right. Not the bond and not the indemnity. Correct. However, we do... Tell me the best case under Louisiana law that says they couldn't do the settlement at this point. So, Your Honor, we didn't brief that issue. We did not brief that issue because it was travelers... If your argument is they didn't have the authority as a matter of law, even though they did contractually, tell me as clearly as you can in 53 seconds what the law is that made it against public policy. It's the general provisions of the civil code as it relates to mandate. Those general provisions say that essentially the mandate, the mandatory cannot take action that... Dushits couldn't give them what he gave them in order to get their $5 million. He could give them essentially that, but that it was inappropriate for them to do this without his permission. But we're getting back to the bond as well. As you brought up, we have to get back to the bond. We have to read the bond in conjunction with the GAI. Because Mr. Krebs said that there didn't have to be a formal declaration of default or even a proper declaration of default. Well, then how on earth are contractors supposed to understand when the GAI is going to kick in and when it's not? As we argued at length in our brief, the parish defaulted first, and therefore the bond could not have been triggered. The parish defaulted first by not paying FCI. The GAI never even certified the request for payment because, right? They never even were asked to pay. We disagree, Your Honor. I see my time has expired. But the pay app was submitted. It's SKA's duty to certify the pay app. They didn't do that, and so they weren't paid. And that in itself is the breach because that is when they immediately assigned responsibility for the rotational conflict to FCI. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Bergeron. Your case is under submission. Last case for today.